So we're going through this series in Mark, and there are two questions. The first one is, who is this Jesus? And so obviously we've seen by now that Jesus was a little unusual, uh, to say the obvious. Now, one of the interesting things that I think about, I'm thinking a lot about his humanity these days. He's uh, God in, in humanity, humanity in God. Um, the Bible's pretty clear that Jesus wasn't getting a lot of followers because he was particularly attractive physically, but it also doesn't indicate that he was unusual in terms of being particularly unattractive. He was an average-looking Jewish man. He had uh, a good job. He had a great family. He had an impeccable character. In short, he was a very good catch. And yet, in spite of the matchmakers in his village of Nazareth, uh, he never got kind of connected with an eligible and good young woman uh, uh, up until age 30, and that's just kind of unusual. Uh, why do you think that might have happened? Well, uh, to state the particularly obvious again, from what we've learned, Jesus had more important things to do, like to teach about the kingdom of God and to heal people and deliver them from demons. He was going to gather some followers, and then he was going to suffer and die uh, to forgive the sins of all who would place their trust in him. Uh, so that sort of takes him out, I guess, of the marriage component. But I suppose, humanly speaking, I wonder if there wasn't still in his village the stigma of his unusual birth out of wedlock to marry with or without Joseph's participation in terms of the thinking of the people there that put this little stigma on him as not being somebody uh, worth being married. Well, in any event, though he was unmarried, he seemed to love children and families. Evidenced by his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And as we heard last week when Hannah was speaking, beautifully, by the way, from Mark 9, 36, his saying that to welcome a child is to welcome him and his father. In Jesus, as an unmarried man, we see somebody who was an advocate for children. He used an exaggeration we already heard in Mark 9.42 to state that anybody who causes a little one like this who believes in him to stumble, you might as well just wear a large millstone under water. Now, his advocacy for children was in stark contrast to the attitude of his culture. Both the Jewish culture and the Greco-Roman culture, uh, children were certainly among the least of these. Uh, they were not to be heard from in polite company and also in many cases not to be seen. So Jesus' unusual promotion of children and families is also why he differed from his culture when it came to what he had to say about marriage and what he had to say about divorce. A difference which still exists from the general attitude of our culture on these very matters. So as we continue the journey's journey through the Gospel of Mark, we arrive at chapter 10. And as Pastor Tom indicated, thank you Tom, some very challenging words that Jesus says about divorce but more importantly, words that are challenging that he says about marriage. Now, I want to begin by just saying a few things. To those of you here who've gone through a divorce or you're currently going through a divorce, may you sense in this message not God slamming you, but God encouraging you, guiding you, and helping you, and helping all of us, because this is a message for everybody who's been involved in our marriage or somebody else's marriage or 
our own divorce or somebody else's divorce. And I want you to know this morning, I will probably say something that is offensive uh, to everybody in this room. And if that comes from some thoughtless or heedless or clueless uh, idiot type of comment that I sometimes uh, occasionally let fly, I apologize in advance. And would you please do me a favor? Come forward and speak to me after the service so that I can apologize to you personally and also can change my thinking or my words in the future. However, as we'll also see, Jesus' own words might cause offense or hurt to you. And because that's God's word, I, I can't apologize for that. Though I can perhaps explain how they're intended not to harm you, but actually to help us, to bring to us the two great aspects of Jesus that seem to be over here and over here these days. Truth on the one side and grace on the other come together in God and particularly in Jesus and in his word in a way that offers both guidance and comfort, conversion and acceptance. Take a look at this diagram, if you will, as it kind of imagines uh, truth and grace. High grace, low grace, high truth, low truth, meaning an emphasis on grace, an emphasis on truth, or not so much. Now, there may be those here who are the kind of people who always want to be emphasizing the truth, high truth, the truth of God's word, but honestly, you focus a little less on grace. So what you're going to hear today from this scripture and more importantly from my ex explanation of it might seem too lenient, kind of the way people thought Jesus was, some people did. Now there are others of you here who might focus more highly on grace and perhaps less on truth and what you're going to hear today may seem to be really harsh and uncompromising uh, and some people felt Jesus was like that as well. And for those who are here today who really aren't very well connected to the truth of God's word, nor the grace of God's character, what you're going to hear today is going to be just plain stupid. That's what you'll think. It's going to be stupid. But for those who are seeking to embody both grace and truth, I hope that what you'll hear is a challenge for us to answer that second question. Not only who is Jesus, but what would it mean for me to follow him? both personally. What would it mean for us to follow him as a community and as a culture that is seriously struggling with the things we're going to be talking about today? For when it comes to life and relationships, including marriage and divorce, as God's little ones who believe in him were all stumbling and hardened in heart, and yet we're still the beloved of God. I wonder what that noise is. Oh, that's the heating system. Okay, just coming up. Let's pray. So God, we thank you uh, today that you desire us not only to know who you are, but to know what it means to follow you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would come and bring grace and truth to this today. And particularly as this will kind of present us with some challenging truth, I pray that you would accompany it, Lord, uh, with the grace of the Holy Spirit, that we would know that we're loved enough to be addressed directly, not so that we would leave here feeling beaten, 
but we would leave here feeling encouraged and directed and guided. So, Lord, would you come and do what only you can do? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you'll um, turn in the Bible, either in your hands or in front of you in the church Bible, I think it's page 715, if I'm not mistaken. That is Mark chapter 10, and I'll read verses 1 to 9. Jesus then left that place, which was the place called Capernaum in the northern part of um, Israel, and he went south into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Now, some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, what did Moses command you? Jesus replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus and his disciples leave Capernaum, the village up north in the region of his hometown, and they head south and east to Judea across the Jordan, a region which has not proved friendly to Jesus, to his ministry, or to his disciples. Now, that's particularly true of the religious authorities who, along with crowds of people, come out to see this guy. But among them were the Pharisees. Now, these were pious Jews who, in the first century B.C., were the good people. They joined with Jewish patriots to fight for freedom from Syrian oppression. And in their day, they were the heroes of the faith. Their legacy and their passion was in keeping the biblical law and the unwritten religious traditions that had kept Israel alive in the dark times. But unfortunately, by Jesus' day, they had many of them become legalistic, rigid, and to their discredit, hypocritical in applying God's law, seeking to take specks of sin out of other people's eyes and not out of the giant logs of sin in their own eyes, as Jesus would say. So verse 2 says, some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Note they came to test him. Now this isn't like the MCAS or the SAT or the GRE. This test is designed to trip him up, asking him a question that's dangerous for him to answer. Now it's dangerous in one way because in this same location, Jesus' cousin John baptized and preached directly against the divorce and remarriage of King Herod and his brother's wife. Perhaps the Pharisees, therefore, hoped that Herod might hear about Jesus' teaching about divorce and come and take him away and kill him just as they'd done John. Now that may be a little much to expect the Pharisees wanted to assassinate Jesus, but a little bit later, that's going to come to pass, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. At the very least, the Pharisees hope to trap Jesus in a question that asks a reply about divorce. The legality of divorce had been debated by the Jewish religious authorities for generations, resulting in many words, many arguments, and probably many broken friendships. Basically, by Jesus' day, there were two main schools of thought 
in Jewish culture about divorce. First, it was lawful, but only in the case of somebody's sexual immorality by the one who was being divorced, and in most cases, it was the woman who was being divorced. Or on the other hand, it was lawful for anything that the husband found displeasing about his wife, like she burns the breakfast. Now notice, Jesus doesn't take the bait of this question. Instead, as he often does, he asks his questioners a different question in verse 3. He asks, what did Moses command you? Jesus is asking them to go back to a passage that they knew well in Deuteronomy 24, where Moses said this about divorce. He said, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and sends her from his house, and then it goes on to describe a few more things. Now notice in that little phrase there, we have those two words, displeasing and indecent, which describes the school, two schools of thought. Divorce is allowed for undecency, probably sexual immorality, and divorce is allowed for being displeasing, which simply means anything goes as the grounds for divorce. So I want us to notice three things here. First, Jesus says when he asks them that it's Moses that commands this. What did Moses command you? He doesn't say what did God command you. Now, in Deuteronomy, written as the people of Israel were finally, after 40 years of wandering, about to enter the promised land, Moses, first of all, reiterates, restates the commands that were given to him by God on Sinai back in the book of Exodus 40 years earlier, including those Ten Commandments that perhaps we know. But then for this new generation, Moses adds additional commands and ordinances in order to order the life of the people once they get into the promised land. And so this teaching on divorce was one of those that Moses gave as opposed to God giving it from on high. Second, I want you to note that the certificate of divorce, which seems like a trivial matter to us, but it actually was an ordering thing. It was giving the divorced woman at least some status in her culture so that she could be rejoined uh, in, the, in, in polite society, shall we say. Whereas in other cultures that they were going into and had left out of, a woman who had been thrown out by her husband had no standing at all. And you don't want to even think about what happened to her. Now, third, I want you to note the conditional nature of Moses' statement. It begins with, if a man. It doesn't say when, and it doesn't say a man should. It just says, if this happens. This, this is stating sort of, if this has to happen, but it's sort of indicating, we hope it doesn't. Because this teaching of Moses about divorce is one of only two places where he teaches on this subject. Uh, what we need to hear today is the Bible is way more pro-marriage than it is anti-divorce. So Jesus asked this question because I think he wants to hear how the Pharisees quote Moses, and so they go to it. They say, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away, and he knows what he's been asking for. They summarize it really briefly, very crassly. It's okay to send her away, indicating exactly what Jesus was concerned with in his culture 
and in some cases in ours. Jesus knew that this kind of no-fault attitude toward divorce is the kind of thing that crushes the little ones, both children and adults, that he came to defend and to save. He loves these little ones, and anything that causes them to stumble as they go through the rest of their lives, sort of like the people of Israel stumbling around in the desert, anything that causes them to stumble needs to be deep-sixed. Further, Jesus also has caught the heart attitude that's behind what they said. Verse 5, it's because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. You see, Jesus is teaching here that divorce was Moses' accommodation to the brokenness of human nature. Our hard-heartedness that causes all of our primary relationships at one time or another to sour and some to fester and some to to die. A legal divorce was put forward by Moses as a way to bring order in relationships that are broken and in a society that in general disregards God's will on a lot of things. You see, Moses' allowance wasn't to make divorce commendable as it seemed like the Pharisees thought it was or even acceptable, but to reduce the hardship of marriage breakup for all involved and particularly for the women and children who inherit the hard-heartedness which is the, at the heart of all relationship failures. And so Jesus now goes on to remind the Pharisees and all of us of God's original intention for marriage that comes from the book of Exodus. Verse 6, At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, this comes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. First, God created them in his image, male and female. Now, these terms, and I'm kind of on a little quest to get the idea, what do these terms mean? Because at this I know, male and female is way more than your chromosomes or what's between your legs. It's something to do with the image of God, and it defines core aspects of our identity and this difference in the genders is meant to complement each other in society in many different ways. And there are some cases when one each of these two genders come together in a particular way that's described here in marriage. And it's meant to picture the relationship between God and his people, two different entities coming together. It's also a picture of the two entities that were in Jesus himself, God and human, joined together in one package. And so from Genesis 2, he says, a man leaves his father and mother. And by the way, it was assumed in that culture that the woman would leave the father and mother. In fact, she left her house in a procession and was taken to the groom's house where she would eventually go to live. And by the way, we have vestiges of that in wedding ceremonies today where the father of the bride brings the bride down the aisle to the groom. But this says the man too leaves the father and mother and then they are joined together, a joining of heart and mind and, 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 and will and property and so on, symbolized in the ceremony of marriage in which declarations are made that I am for you and you are for me, 
And then, finally, thirdly, they become one flesh in their relationship, which includes the sexual consummation of the marriage. That was, and still is, God's plan for the relationship, the sexual relationship, the marital relationship between husband and wife. And in this deliberative and committed and unitive con context, the little ones who believe in God, the man and the woman, and the children who may come from their one flesh relationship, they can find security and truth and grace embodied in their marriage and in the God who has authored it. And so Jesus comments on this teaching in verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together let no one separate. Very clearly then, in terms of God's original ideal, there's to be no marital separation. What Jesus' people and ours would call divorce, any more than God can divorce his people, or Jesus can somehow divorce one aspect of himself, either the God part or the human part, and most of the heresies in church history have derived because people say, well, he's not really a human, or he's not really God. It's just not possible. So the Bible as a whole, Old Testament and New Testament, affirms marriage as a lifelong union in the Lord. So friends, this is the truth, the ideal truth from God. He is never happy about divorce. He sees it as a symptom of our collectively having stumbled away from his will and his way of life. Not just the people who are divorcing, but all of us and our hard-heartedness as a culture in doing so. You see, you and I live in selves that are infected by sin and selfishness, caused to stumble by the evil that we have done and the evil that others have done to us. And we've hardened our hearts to defend and protect ourselves resulting in an entire culture that stumbles around and is hard of heart, sort of like the people of Israel wandering in the desert. And these days in particular, doesn't it seem to you, as it does to me, as if hardness of heart and bitterness is running rampant in our relationships, in our neighborhoods, in our politics, in our government, and even in our churches and certainly in our marriages. And so in such a setting, perhaps divorce, ordered as it is, may be a necessary thing, as it was with Moses. But it's when it becomes seen as sort of a natural thing. Oh, that happens, you know, 40 or 50% of marriages end in divorce. Or maybe people see it as a good thing. That's where Jesus intervenes. And he says, no to this divorcing attitude because in the midst of this are little ones who believe in him, both adults and children, who thereby are caused to stumble and to become hardened in heart in ways that affects the rest of their lives. And in the context of the male privilege of Jesus' day to divorce a wife for any reason or in later generations for women to do the same, Jesus would echo the word of God from the very last book of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, Malachi 2.16, which reads this, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, 
says the Lord Almighty. Well, that's, this is really hard stuff. I don't know about you, but I feel it in the room. This is hard. I, last night when I brought this message, I felt it in my body. I, I left feeling like I'd been beaten up. It's just hard. And no doubt it was hard for Jesus' first disciples too because in verse 10, when they left that place after Jesus said those words, the disciples asked him some questions uh, about all of this. Probably like the leading rabbis of their day who were considering various causes or circumstances that might warrant divorce. So maybe they said, well, what about, what about the, the, a sexless marriage? You know, there's no sexual intercourse. What about that? What about a marriage that has no children, they might have said. What about the fact that, that he or she is no longer attractive? They're no longer attracted to each other. They've fallen out of love. What, what about somebody just being plain unhappy in the relationship? And those, frankly, friends are in no way to be considered as immediate grounds for divorce. But the Bible does at least seem to grant the possibility of divorce in a couple of cases. In the case of sexual unfaithfulness with someone outside the marriage, you'll find that in Matthew 19, verse 9. Or in the case of abuse or abusing unfaithfulness within the marriage, you'll find something about that in 1 Corinthians 5. And in the case of desertion unfaithfulness by an unbelieving partner who wishes to depart, you'll find something about that in 1 Corinthians 7. Adultery, of course, breaks the first marriage bond because actually it creates a second marriage bond in the sexual union. The Bible says anybody you have sex with, you technically are married to that person. That's something we're thinking about. So adultery breaks the first marriage bond by destroying, uh, uh, by destroying it. Abuse also breaks the bond by destroying the union of husband and wife and any children through violence. And desertion declare, de breaks the bond by declaring it null and void. It just doesn't exist anymore. Now, there are genuine questions about divorce from Jesus' people who are trapped in this stumbling, hard-hearted culture and its relationships and itself. But ultimately, Jesus silences any self-justifying questions by using the same kind of extreme statements that he made back in the prior chapter as he spoke of sin or of harming little ones. So Jesus says these words now. He answered them. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, very clear here that Jesus is against the no-fault, easy divorce culture of his day and ours. But those words are hyperbole. They are pushed to an extreme. Just as we don't have people who were cutting off their hands or their feet because of their sin, or putting millstones around somebody's neck and throwing them into the sea because they were harming little ones. So Jesus is not suggesting that divorced people must consider themselves to be adulterers but rather that in this whole matter of divorce, we need to consider what we're doing here and the relationships that are getting wrecked and messed with in the way we treat this matter. Jesus wants us to treat marriage reverently, deliberately, and in accord with the purposes for which it was instituted by God and to reject this divorce mentality that has been foisted upon us by our culture. 
and to seek repentance and healing in our attitudes and in our actions in these critical areas of our culture and our spiritual life. So that being said, what are we little ones supposed to do now, today? What are those who are heading for divorce supposed to do? What's the future for those who have already been divorced? What can married people do to prevent their own divorce? What can unmarried people do to help out in these situations along with married people? So once again, we come back to Jesus' focus on the little ones who believe in him, who are stumbling and hardened and who need Jesus and his people to help. You see, Mark puts this story of Jesus together. This Gospel of Mark didn't, just didn't happen from one scene to another scene to another scene. There are some times where Mark adds a transition. Just then, somebody brought children. He doesn't say that here. Just then, as they had this discussion about divorce, just so happened people were bringing children. No, Mark puts this children's story right after this, I think in order to remind us of the grace of God. Let's read this. Verse 13, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms. He placed his hands on them and he blessed them. I think it's good that that's here now. Because given what was just said there, there might be people who say, well, I can never come to God now because I'm a mess. And there might be those who might say to you, yeah, you can't go to God like that. And Jesus is going to be indignant because you're a little one. And if you're wanting to believe in him, he wants you to come just as you are. If, if it were performance that were the basis on which I'd come to Jesus, I never would come. Never would have come in a million years. I have a rap sheet as long as you can imagine. But Jesus says, come. And don't let anyone prevent you, and including you. Don't let your attitude, your self-condemning attitude, prevent you from coming to me. He's indignant about that. Come, please, come. Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. Because when you become a child like that, coming to Jesus, then you are close to the kingdom of God. And he takes the little children in his arms. And he blessed them, puts his hands on them, and he blesses them. That's what Jesus wants to do for us. So, like the little children of God that we are, we need to seek the touch of Jesus. We need to seek the touch of Jesus, whose grace can forgive us, heal us, those we love, and can counteract any shame that any of us feel about anything we've done that may have failed him or somebody else, or even failed our own ideas of what we were like need to seek the touch of Jesus. We need also to press through the culture that we live in, whose stumbling hard-heartedness inhibits our coming to Jesus, telling us either that we could never come to somebody as good as that, or that we need to do what's right for ourselves and stick up for ourselves and forget about pleasing anybody else. Just take your own life in your hands. We need to press through that culture and say, no, I need Jesus. Because I know that there's truth there that I need to hear. But there's also grace that's going to heal me, 
forgive me, make me a new person. And we must receive the kingdom of God. This is what it means to follow Jesus. To receive the king and his kingdom and his order of things, including the king's perspective from Genesis on marriage. We need to leave our fathers and mothers. You know, most of my married life, I was living, I think, out of this sense that somebody's supposed to take care of me, like my mom did. And I, I think Hallie took care of me pretty well, and I, I kind of expected that. I kind of expect people to take care of me. Well, now she can't do that anymore because of her illness. You know what's happening? The 67-year-old is starting to grow up. Starting to grow up. And, and some of us need to grow up. If you're living in a, in a relationship or a marriage where you're expecting your person to take care of you, that's not their job to take care of you. It's your job to let God take care of you, to be part of taking care of one another. That's the deal here. We need to leave our father and mother. And we need to also be joined together to one another. And one of the things that's challenging for us right now is Hallie can't really talk much, physically can't talk. So we need to press into finding new ways to communicate with each other. If we rely on verbal communication, there's not much left. But we press in. And if you're in a marriage and you've kind of gotten into the kind of no communication mode where you know, you're living by grunts back and forth, you've got to press in. You've got to press in. You've got to be joined together and keep on being joined together with your spouse. And then it says you leave and you be joined together and then you become one flesh. And that's pictured again in that marriage ceremony. Two people leaving, their father and mother, being joined together in a ceremony of commitment and then becoming one flesh and having sexual intercourse. I just need to say this. If you had sexual intercourse before you were married, if you're married, or you are having sexual intercourse now and you're not married, uh, you need to repent. Just pure and simple. That's not God's plan, and it's part of the way that we've gotten messed up because it creates a stumbling and a hardness of heart that if it's not appearing now, will appear later. At the very least, if you're in an unmarried relationship and you're having sexual relations, you need to cease in order to see what's really there and what's not really there. That's just good advice, friends. And then one more little thing for married people. And this is happening more and more. Maybe we're all just a little too tired. But there are a lot of people who aren't having sex anymore in marriage. And the Bible says that that may be necessary for a season. But if you're here today and you're not having sexual relations with your wife or your husband, that's something God wants to encourage you to do. And you may need to get some help around that. And I just got to say, there are people here, and I'm certainly one of them, you're hearing me talking about my sex life. And there is a sex life for us, even at this stage in our life. We're looking for ways to make love with each other. You can talk to us about this. This is not a taboo subject in church. Sex is not the forbidden fruit that they took from the tree, as a lot of people think. It's a beautiful thing within its beautiful context. And of course, in all of this, we need the embrace of Jesus, who will put his hands on us gently, and bless us and restore us. And we got to do this together because, man, no marriage is meant to stand by itself. No relationship, no dating relationship really stands by itself. We need to surround ourselves with good people who can advise us and help us, not if we get in trouble, but when we get in trouble. We need to have somebody to talk to. That's what church is about. 
That's why we're here, is to help one another. That's why we have groups where we can talk about stuff like this. For unmarried people, for married people, we need the gifts and perspectives that we all bring from God to all of our relationships. And we'll find that God can use stumbling, hard-hearted people like us to help each other to find the grace and the truth that we really need and that we can offer to one another. So following the service, I'm going to stick around if you need to ask me any questions or you have some criticism or comments that you want to bring to me. I'll be glad to talk with you further about this at some other time. And you might also want to take advantage of those who stand ready to pray for you by going over here to the prayer room after the, after the service. In any event, please receive the blessing of Jesus, who, though we be stumbling and hard-hearted, calls us his beloved children. Let's pray.